that in just a couple weeks we're going to dismiss Sunday services. We won't have a 9 or a 10.30 service because we want to go serve our community. And so when you're dismissed today, there are going to be some areas in the lobby here for you to sign up for a project, one of five in our city that you and your family can really own and serve. Craig will have a little bit more details uh, later in services uh, regarding that. Also, on our website, under our Summer of Hope window or screen, you can uh, download or open our 31 Days of Hope devotional, which is synchronized with the series that we're in. Uh, we begin a series uh, today, begin a message today called Bringing Jesus Hope to My Imperfect Family. Bringing Jesus Hope to My Imperfect Family. And inside of your programs, you might even notice that we've included uh, some stationery with uh, some Summer of Hope stationery, with some words of encouragement on how to prayerfully uh, reach out to someone uh, with whom you have a gap in your immediate or extended family. Um, I can tell you, having just gotten off vacation, I was reminded when I was having dinner with my um, stepdad and my brother, uh, John and Mark Richardson, in uh, San Clemente, California, that uh, my stepdad, John, really brought hope to our imperfect family. About 10 years ago, he, um, who, who's, who separated from my mom my junior year of high school, uh, and I didn't have a lot of contact with him for six or seven years, he just said, in my early 30s, he says, Scott, I, I want to restart our relationship. Um, what do you say? Just kind of forget what's behind. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't even expect it at all. And what happened was he ended up getting really involved in my family. He's been very active um, in the lives of my kids, been to a lot of football games, um, and uh, it's been a, a real uh, sweet piece to our home that isn't perfect, that wasn't uh, what you would dream for initially, but it's become a very healthy um, California family. And this summer I also had a chance to read about uh, a Seattle uh, Washington family in the 1920s that really tugged at my heart uh, as it relates to bringing Jesus hope to imperfect families. I read about the University of Washington uh, crew member, row crew member of the what became the 1936 Olympics team, uh, Joe Rance, who was raised uh, in a very meager uh, means um, just uh, during and following the Depression, which really hit uh, Washington, like it did many other regions in our country, enduring all the, the, the heavy dust storms. Um, his father lost his, uh, lost his wife, Joe's mother, early in life, and then remarried, and the woman he remarried didn't appreciate Joe. You can see perhaps Joe behind me in this image. He was a big guy, and he, he, he ate a ton. And uh, it was... It was uh, a real thorn in his uh, stepmom's um, flesh, and uh, eventually his dad had to come to him at age 8 or 11 and say, we're going to need to find another place for you. It's not working out you being in my home. And they, they orphaned him, and he became just a kind of a, a self-willed um, worker just to survive, um, got his own jobs, and continued to develop his body as the University of Washington was interested in him trying out for their row team. And he had this incredible strength that 
when he was on, it changed what they call in row team glossary or vernacular. It changed the swing of the whole canoe. And yet he was very unpredictable. He was up and down in his um, performance, and it really affected the whole team. Harmony is a very high value on a canoe. And this sophomore team that he was on was projected to go to the 1936 Olympics. They were that good. They won the Ivy League competition on the East Coast. And yet Joe couldn't get leveled out. And yet when he performed at a high level, that canoe did the best. And so there was someone that brought hope into his life, a guy named George Humans. And George was the internationally known um, craftsman of canoe boats. I mean, he was the guy, and he actually did his work on campus at the University of Washington. For a lot of the other Ivy League schools, he actually designed their boats. But George took some time to be with Joe Rance and told Joe, Joe, you don't want to miss this opportunity. You've got a chance to go to the Olympics. But you've got to deal with this stuff that's in your heart. You've got to deal with this, this inability to trust others. If you will start trusting the other seven guys on your crew, you will be able to row right off the planet. You'll be able to excel at a very high level. George Humans brought hope to Joe's heart, and it transformed the what they call the swing of that crew. That crew won in the U.S. They went. They were... They were uh, made it to the finals. They actually were the, the number one team rated in the finals, but you'll notice with this final clip in Berlin that they were given uh, the first two boats you see there in this order are Germany and Italy. And then the last lane, lane six, which was the worst lane, had the worst current, had the worst uh, actual um, position to hear the starting gun. They started two strokes behind. But because of the transformation in Joe's ability to trust the guys he was with, um, the hope that he got, uh, his performance helped uh, really catalyze this boat to winning, to eclipsing and beating Germany and Italy in the 1936 Olympics. Yay, U.S., USA, USA! It's a great book. If you haven't, if you want a good summer read, you didn't get one. It's Boys in the Boat. It's a great read, inspiring, especially for, um, I think, for moms and dads, uh, for young aspiring athletes and academicians and, and, and even business people that are trying to build great harmony on their staff. It's a great tool to consider. Um, so with that, I want to talk about bringing hope to imperfect families like the one I was raised in. And I describe an imperfect family in the following um, biblical ways. It's a family where there's favoritism, where sometimes a parent chooses a son or daughter that they're going to really try to make a pathway for at the expense of the other kids. Sometimes there's lying, deceit, just lying, and manipulation to try to give to one son or one daughter uh, something that is disproportionate or um, hurtful. And then there's, um, there's, a, there's hatred. What starts off as a seed of maybe just, just hurt becomes bitterness, becomes anger, and becomes hatred. And, you know, when you think about how do we get through these, you could call them, you know, toxic experiences as kids that sometimes, like Joe Rance experienced, 
or like I could have easily experienced. I could have easily been a very bitter, angry young kid. Easily. Uh, How do we get unstuck from those toxins that want to just creep into our heart and make us really unpleasant to be around? How do we do that? One classic I've been reading is Viktor Frankl's uh, treatment of how uh, Jewish uh, concentration camp prisoners survived the camps that they were in. And one point he makes is that one of the very strongest, very strongest um, components of someone's survivability was their understanding and experience of love. He says, the salvation of man is through love and in love. And what he argued was that when there were uh, Jew- fellow Jewish prison inmates that, that had, had an experience of love or were experiencing the hope of being reunited with a spouse or a child, that love, that unconditional, all-in, committed love is what got them through. And I would argue that it's what, it's what gets us through. It's what helps us be hope bringers, not only to our own families, but it helps us be hope bringers to the other families in our neighborhood, the other families in our community that need hope. I can't tell you how many families that I am working with right now that are hanging by a thread because of a vacillating hope in one another, in the future. And I want to bring Jesus' hope to families, that you can have a great family experience and that you can continue to enjoy your family more and more. Um, one, before I even start, there's a, there's a little piece of scripture I want to I touch on. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm not going to land there. I'm going to spend more time in Genesis 32, which is on page 32 in our Adventure Bibles. Uh, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a verse that I memorized as a kid um, about God's love and about our commitment to it. And in the verse, uh, the the co-worker of Jesus says this. He says, And he, Christ, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. And here he's speaking to the Christ follower. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, he is speaking to you. And it's this. It's this example we have in Jesus. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that those like me and you like us, who continue to live. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died and rose again for our behalf. And so we have this commission as hope bringers. Hope bringers. And I I love the passage that says, and these things remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hope is the object of our faith. And love is the tangible hands and feet that we have a sincere faith and hope. It is, it is that mark of a Christ follower that Christians are to be known for. Their unconditional, all-out, non-performance love for other people. Have you viewed yourself as a hope bringer? If not, let that verse uh, tangle you up a little bit. <laughs> we don't, we're not to live for ourselves. We're to live for him who died and rose again on and for our behalf. The question I want to answer this morning is, how do we own the gap that maybe we've created with our immediate and or our extended family? How do we own that 
gap. And I want to tell you just in simple words, it's this. You just own the gap that you've created. If there's a gap you've created in your family, you own it. You own the gap you've created. Now, I'm not talking about the gaps others have created. You can't own their gap necessarily. And I'm certainly not talking about any um, unspeakable, any inappropriate emotional abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse. We don't want you to be a part of of allowing or enabling any of that in your life. We're not talking about that. We want you to be protected. And uh, if you have any issues, you don't hesitate to write me a confidential request for a phone call, and I'll be glad to follow up and help you with that. We're not talking about owning that. We're talking about owning the gaps you've created, where you can say, yeah, I got to own that one. I created that one. I, that's me. I remember when I first got married uh, to Melissa, she's from southern Arkansas, and I was from southern California. In, in east central Arkansas, you, you show lots of respect. It's yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and you don't say what's on your mind, okay? Well, in southern California, you don't even know what a ma'am or a sir is, and you say what, you don't even have a mind. You just say what's ever on your heart, right? I was in big trouble for a long time. No kidding. I said a few things. Wow, I'm sure they could be quoted at a family reunion. I haven't asked for that, for that yet. But I had, to, I had to reboot, restart, and own some mistakes that I made. That's what I'm talking about, owning. Even in my relationship with my sons, I recently had to own up and say, Yeah, son, you're right. Will you forgive me? I'm going to work on that. Uh, that's part of being a good parent is being a Christ follower right alongside your kids. And I'm really, uh, I find my relationship with my kids growing and exciting. But you got to own. you got to own your stuff. Um, that's how you grow. And those relationships give you great hope fuel uh, for the future. Let's look at this narrative. Let's, let's read from this account. It's probably about uh, 2000 B.C. And let's see um, what's, uh, what universal archetypes are here about uh, family. I think you'll find them pretty interesting. Uh, look in verse 6 uh, of chapter 32. I'm going to start reading. When the messengers returned to Jacob... They said, we, want, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. That's not a good sign. Verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed. What did Jacob do? He, he prayed. He was scared to death. He hasn't seen his brother in 20 years, and his brother is bringing 400 men. It's not a good sign at a family reunion. If you're going to be with your family, and a family member brings 400. And Jacob prays, and he gets inspired. Verse 13 says, he spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. And he lists it here, 200 female ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He gives him a gift. Joseph, rather Jacob, through his prayer time, gives his brother Esau a gift. This is is for Jacob, this is owning his own 
his own, the gap that he created in the relationship. That sounds like a fire alarm, is it? We good? Okay, tell that person, thank you. Uh, we, Jacob owned the gap in his relationship with his brother. Listen to this gap that he created. Jacob was the second born. You know how second borns tend to want what the first born has. You want what you don't have. Uh, Jacob was a man of the kitchen. He helped his mom around her kitchen aid often. And Esau was a man of the field. He was a hunter. And uh, Esau, for whatever reason, um, didn't appear to really connect with Jacob well. Maybe one was a, you know, uh, one had, you know, a future in culinary and maybe Ivy League academics, and the other was a, you know, whatever, a, a future Division I athlete. They didn't seem to connect very well in their youth. And what happened is his parents, their parents, started showing favoritism. Esau was a man of the field like his dad, um, Isaac, and Isaac showed favoritism to him. Uh, Rebecca, Isaac's uh, wife, showed favoritism to her son, Jacob. And Jacob took advantage of this. On one occasion, Esau was famished. He'd come in from a long day's hunt, maybe a a 20-mile run, whatever. And he got back. He was famished. Jacob was in the kitchen cooking like he normally does. And he said, Esau, if you're so hungry, sell me your birthright, and I'll give uh, give you this lentil soup. Now, this happens in my home sometimes. I'll not over lentil soup, but often I'll hear my son say, 100 bucks, you can't do that, 100 bucks. I'll pay you $500 if you can do that. Now, I'm waiting. They're not offering me that, but they do that with one another. And I'm like, hey, guys, don't, don't do that. Do you see how easy it is to, like, will 100 bucks away? Because if you, if you do that, you need to pay them. You keep your word. So that's kind of quieted down in our home. But in, 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 in this relationship with Esau and Jacob, Esau, Esau said, okay, give me, what's, what's my birthright to me? I'm just about famished. In, in the... The other writers, when they, uh, Jesus contemporaries, will describe Esau as the guy who lived for the flesh, immediate gratification of the flesh. It's a, it's a great example of how not to live when you allow your flesh or your body to control your decisions. Esau uh, accepted this deal, ate the uh, lentil soup, but simultaneously gave away his birthright. Here was birthright, what it meant. It meant that in, if you had the birthright, you were the firstborn, and... At this point, evidently, it could be given to another son. The law will change it later. But a birthright meant you inherited 60% of your dad's inheritance. If you were the second born, you inherited uh, 30% if there were two. But you always got two portions of the inheritance, a double portion. In just a moment, Esau gave it up. And it was because Jacob took advantage of him. He manipulated him. He not only manipulated that, he and his mother, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, uh, manipulated the blessing that comes from a father to his son. It was supposed to go to Esau, the firstborn. The blessing was a moment when uh, a, um, a son actually would place his hand on the loin of his father for a family blessing, for not only procreation, but also uh, success, Rebecca and uh, and Jacob manipulated deceitfully that blessing that should have gone to Esau and ensured that it went to Jacob. This is a family where favoritism was taking place, deceit, manipulation, very hurtful wounds. Jacob owned them. He owned that. 
he owned that, that he had been involved in that. And he could have easily said, kind of like we do, do you ever say this? Hey, you know, bro, if you'd been a little bit, you know, been home a little bit more, I wouldn't have felt compelled to, you know, take advantage of you. If, if you'd been a little better brother, maybe a little more affectionate, maybe, maybe been a little nicer, you know, hung out with me a little bit, I might not have felt like I needed to take advantage of you. He could have justified it. He could have said, hey, you know, you know whose idea, Esau, it was that I take your um, blessing from dad? It, it was mom's fault. That was all mom. So you need to go talk. He didn't do that. He didn't play the blame game. He owned it. What evidence is there here that he owned it? Well, he gives him hundreds of cattle. He's extremely generous with his brother. Now, it may be that he just feared for his life. But that being said, it's, I don't think an either or. It's both and. He feared for his life and he understood that he had taken from his brother and it was time to give back. He owned it. Do you own your manipulation and your deceit? Do you own the gap that you have created between an immediate or extended family member? Will you own it? I provided you this stationery just as a starter kit to maybe send a note to someone, maybe, maybe an email. Um, sometimes for me, if I'm owning something, I mean, this sounds kind of, I mean, I'll, I like to pick up the phone. Or ideally, if it's really sensitive, I want eye-eye contact. I want them to hear, hey, will you forgive me? Um, and, and uh, you know, um, FaceTime makes that really possible, doesn't it? <laughs> if it's across the country, will you forgive me? I want to own that. That's mine. That's not yours. Maybe that's a decision. Maybe there's someone in your family that needs to hear from you this week. Uh, before we move too far, too soon, in Second Corinthians also, there's evidence of he who is the best owner of, of separation than anyone. And it's God himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a line that, where the writer, uh, a contemporary of Jesus, says this, God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's Christianity in a nutshell. Sin, selfishness, self-absorption separates you from God. God sent His Son to own the separation and bring hope and peace to the separation you had with God by suffering on a cross as a substitutionary death for your sins. God owned the separation between you and Him by allowing His Son Jesus to suffer on the cross. All you have to do is say, God, thank you for owning the separation. I'm willing to trust in you. Thank you for owning the separation. I believe that your death was for my sins. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. And then to trust his spirit that resurrected him from the dead to live in you and to help you become a person of faith, a hope bringer of love. That's a decision maybe for you to make today. Maybe towards the end of our service, you'll decide, you know what, today's the day. I'm going to own that he made that decision for me. I'm ready. I'm all in on that. Jacob, he owned, he owned his, his manipulation and deceit. He owned it. But it wasn't just Jacob. It wasn't just Jacob that owned his manipulation. Esau, firstborn here. I'm going to pick on firstborn. 
if there are any out there like me. Esau's got to own up. So he brings 400 men with him. Why? Uh, Jeremy, who helped me write this message, and Natasha as well, Jeremy suggested that uh, every time he's around his brother, he loses something. I like that. Every time Jacob's around his brother, something goes missing, okay? Uh, A blessing, um, uh, the, the, the right of the firstborn. And so maybe he's just trying to protect himself. Maybe he's just paranoid. I don't know. Maybe rightfully so. At this point, they haven't seen each other in 20 years. But as in chapter 33, verse 1, it says, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put uh, the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down the ground to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. It's, it's a great image that is repeated in Genesis. It's symbolic of someone showing absolute submission to God. By the way, it's a great private prayer practice to not just get on your knees, but to bow and to do it seven times and let God know you are fully His. You, you are fully His servant. I've done it several times. It's special. Esau sees his brother. He's, he's been honored with all these gifts, and he runs to his brother Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, this is very typical of a Middle Eastern family even today. This looks a little bit more dramatic than what we see even in the Middle East today. Esau asked lots of questions. He looked up. He saw the women. He said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, these are the children God has graciously given your servant. Esau You must remember, Esau had a bitterness that turned into an anger that became malice, that became hatred and an intent to kill, and an intent to kill. You know, I hesitated to use this word hatred uh, in the message. I thought, well, that's that's a little strong. Yet those were Esau's, that was Esau's heart, hatred. And Esau, he, he owned this, owned it in several ways in the rest of the narrative. Here's what he did. He received the gift from his brother. It was hard to do. You ever receive a gift from someone that, man, it, it's hard to receive it. He received the gift. Very humbling. He received it. He, he showed his brother perhaps the affection he had never shown him. Hard to hug someone that's taken 30% of your inheritance, wouldn't it be? If you get a chance to, give it a try. Send me a text. Let me know how it goes. It's not easy. He shows his brother maybe affection that his brother always wanted. He owned it. The other thing he does that as a firstborn, or maybe just a control freak that I can be, uh, he lets his brother choose his own route without him. See, at first when, when, when Jacob met up with Esau, Esau wanted to attend him. I'll, I'll go with you. I'll get you to a safe place. Jacob's like, no, I got this. Let's have, let's have a little healthy boundary here. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. They had a nice little reunion. It was day three, time to leave. We're going to walk away here now. Esau was willing to let his brother choose his own direction in Canaan, have his own space. It was becoming a healthy relationship. What could Esau have done? Easily, Esau could have said, you know what, Jacob, you... 
you took everything I had. You took, you took my father's blessing from me. That can never be revoked. A dad only gets to lay his hand on his firstborn son once. That's it. You took that from me. I can't redo that in this life. There's no redo. You, you took my birthright. How's that working for you? He could have started accusing and blaming. He could have said, your mother, she hasn't liked me since. In fact, the text indicates that mother was struggling with Esau and some of the foreign women that he was going to Sonic Burger with. It, it, there was conflict. But he didn't blame. Esau loved. Esau gave up control. Esau hugged and kissed his brother. How do you get the strength to bring that kind of hope to your family? If you haven't got God's blessing and you missed out on your birthright, where is a strength that we can tap into that will give us fuel to be hope bringers, full of faith, full of hope, and these three things remain, and full of love? Where do you get that? I'll tell you, it's in chapter 32. It's tucked between where I was, where I was teaching. And I want to mention it just for a moment. That night, Jacob spent all by himself in prayer, and an angel came to him and started wrestling him. You know the passage. An angel started wrestling with him. And this angel would not let Jacob release him. Jacob would not let this angel go. He was tenacious. He was enduring. And... The angel said, let me go. And Jacob said something that is peculiar. It's in the text. I will not let you go until you bless me. What? The guy's got the right of the firstborn, 60% of the inheritance. He's got the blessing from his dad. He's not done yet. And he's commended for it. He wants God's blessing. I need your blessing. Here's the deal. You can have the right of the firstborn... You can have a blessing from your father. If you don't have God's blessing, you're not for the better for it. You can be without the right of the firstborn and your father's blessing and have God's blessing and be in perfect position. Here's something we all need to own as hope bringers. We need to own whether or not we're receiving God's blessing. That's yours to own. Will you cling on to this cross as that which gives you the power and strength to be a person of faith and hope and love. I told you earlier that this University of Washington row crew member changed the chemistry of his boat that took them to the Olympics and gave him a victory. It also changed his family. He married one of his college sweethearts. He Ended up having a couple kids of his own. He just passed away in 2007. George Humans didn't just bring hope to Joe Rance and his life situation. He brought hope to his whole family. I see adventurers, families that have the fuel to bring hope to the other families around them. I see families at adventure that have the capacity to bring hope to other families around them. 
that you've got fuel, hope fuel. Where does that come from? Does that come from financial blessing? No. Does that come from the blessing of a father? No. Where does it come from? A face-to-face regular encounter with God. What are you doing to open your heart up to the Holy Spirit to give you real, intelligent faith, hope, and love? To do what God has set before you. We, do, we, we, we get hope fuel in times of prayer, just like Jacob did. We get hope fuel in times of honesty with God. I trusted you. Are you going to be there for me? Let me tell you something where the hope fuel also is. It's in endurance. Being tough, hanging in there. Really? Jacob was renamed in this passage. Did you see it? Jacob, you have fought with men and you have fought with God. You will no longer be called Jacob. You will be called Israel. And thus, we have the derivation of the nation of Israel. Who's lasted quite a long time, haven't they? They're still tough. Do you have a need this morning for a personal gut check? about the gap that you've created in a relationship with an immediate or extended family member. I want to ask you to deal with it. Own the gap. Own it. Own the gap that you created with manipulation by love. Own the gap that you may have created with, uh, with malice, bitterness, hatred, with love. Just like Esau did. Own it. Maybe you're here today and you need special prayer in relationship to this gap. I'm going to invite you. My prayer team is going to be up here. They're elders. They're people that I go to for prayer, people you can rely on. Uh, They're going to lead you in a prayer up here if you'd like that. There may be someone else here that has never owned the gap, that what Jesus did on this apparatus in the first century owned the separation gap between God and man. They've never believed that what he suffered was a substitutionary death for them. If that describes you, I want to challenge you to publicly come forward and say, that's me. I want, to own, I want to accept that Jesus owned that gap for me. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, I pray your spirit will help us see what we need to see in our families. I pray your Holy Spirit will show us the gaps we create that we need to own. And I ask that we would see this morning the gap that your son Jesus Christ filled by suffering for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing now, and our, our elders and our prayer team members come forward to receive you, if any of you have a lengthy prayer request, they'll take you back to our prayer room. Why don't you stand as our band leads this song, and if you feel compelled for prayer, you come forward, be bold. Don't, don't require everyone to... Don't worry about what other people think. Be bold. Make a bold move and let us pray with you. Come forward if you're ready for prayer. Peace.